Why We Build Memorials. Today, Wednesday, May 8th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Here in Boston, officials have started to dismantle the impromptu street memorials for victims of the marathon bombings. We'll hear about Israel's experience with similar memorials and sites. Private ones, the unofficial ones, the temporary ones are beautiful at the beginning and then they are very sad eventually. Also today, the Nigerian military and its atrocities against the militant group Boko Haram. There are many people in the north of Nigeria who believe that the cure uh, has become far worse than the disease. And a musician in London who can't shake his roots. I feel I'm becoming more Trinidadian the longer I stay away from the Caribbean. It's impossible for me to, to become English. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World from Boston. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. The final lines there from the poem In Flanders Fields by the Canadian writer, doctor, and lieutenant colonel John McRae. I read them because we begin today's program talking about memorials. And the question, why are there memorials? Well, McRae kind of answers that in those lines. Basically, so you don't forget the dead and how they died. In a moment, we'll hear the issues Israel wrestles with as they memorialize the many victims of attacks and bombings there. We stay here in Boston first, though, and the decision by the city to slowly dismantle the memorial that has materialized in an impromptu way near the site of the twin bombings at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. The world's Andrea Crossan is there. Andrea, tell us about what had been left there at the site and what remains now. Marco, where I'm standing, there are still flowers everywhere. Some of them have clearly been here for a week or two. Some of them are fresh. There are also a number of crosses, candles, and um, a particularly poignant memorial for what happened here in Boston is there are running shoes. Uh, when you look around the site, there are pairs and pairs and pairs and pairs of running shoes that are uh, draped over top flags, draped over top different signs. Uh, there are handwritten notes that uh, are expressing support, Stay Strong Boston. There are a number of notes written from people in different parts of the world, signs from Australia, Canada, Ireland, Germany, Israel, the list goes on and on. So th- these are things that were left by people who knew the victims and just passers-by. So um, why dismantle it? I think that the idea for the city was that they were concerned that so much of the uh, this memorial, there were little scraps of paper and notes that people had written. And Michael, for the last couple of weeks, we've enjoyed some pleasant weather here in Boston, but it's been raining today, and there's concern there's going to be rain for the next few days. And what they've done is they've, they've taken the city archivists, have collected a lot of the notes that people left, and they've packed them away, and there's some talk that maybe there could be a permanent memorial at some point down the line. Right now, though, there are still all the larger items, the stuffed animals, like I said, lots of flowers, lots of running shoes, are still here. But it seems that what has happened is people have draped huge pieces of plastic over top of them so that they're protected from the weather. And where were the items taken, like some of the drawings and and posters? Apparently, they are being saved in the city's archive right now. Um, They're not going to be on display anytime soon, but I think that there is is hope that at some point 
those will be put towards when they actually start discussing a, a proper memorial for what happened here. I'm just wondering, Andrea, did you speak with anyone down there at the site in downtown Boston just about what memorials mean to them? Like, why come to any place where horrors occurred in the first place? Any insightful comments? I was speaking to a woman who was actually visiting Boston from France. She was here with her two children walking around the memorial. And I asked her why she felt it was important for her children to see this. And her response was that she felt that it was important to, for her children to see how much, uh, you know, how much people can care for each other, not just the pain and the suffering of what's happened, but, but the caring and the outpouring and the support after something like this happens. Andrea, good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Marco. The world's Andrea Crossan at the site of the impromptu memorials to the victims of last month's Boston Marathon bombings. When the city of Boston comes to the task of figuring out what form a more permanent memorial will take, it won't be an easy process. There's a lot to consider. One place that's long wrestled with the delicate issues of memorializing victims of brutal violence is Israel, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. There have been dozens of terrorist attacks in Jerusalem over the years, and as a result, there are memorials to the victims all over the city. One of them is here at the Mahana Yehuda open-air produce market. On the afternoon of July 30, 1997, two Palestinian suicide bombers set off nearly simultaneous explosions and killed 16 people. There's a stone plaque on the wall where it happened. It's got the date and the names of each victim, but there's a fading bumper sticker slapped across the memorial. Ori Ginsberg works at a tapas bar down the alley. He never noticed the plaque until I asked him about it. Israelis tend to move on pretty quickly after incidents like this, he says. Yeah, I think they're used to it. Like the part of the mentality of uh, living here. Like people die around you, there's bombing. Happens every once in a while, it's nothing special. Still, Ginsberg, who lost a friend in a 2004 bus bombing, says memorials like the one in the market are important. The victims need to be acknowledged. It's also good for the families. They come, they put flowers on them. Yeah, it's like the last place the man was alive. When civilians are killed in a terrorist attack, it almost seems self-evident. Of course, some kind of memorial should be built to honor the victims. But there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. Private ones, the unofficial ones, the temporary ones are beautiful at the beginning and then they are very sad eventually. Asa Kasher is a professor of ethics and philosophy at Tel Aviv University. During the Second Intifada, Kasher says impromptu memorials sprouted up, but people started to complain, and for good reason, he says. However well-intentioned, a memorial that's not well-planned and well-maintained defeats the purpose. The whole idea of a memorial is to remember, not to forget. But when such a site seems one that has been forgotten, then it's, it's really improper. When I show Kasher a picture of the plaque in the Jerusalem market with the bumper sticker on it, he shakes his head and says this is the kind of thing he's talking about. A proper memorial should be seen as a long-term project, he says. It should also be accessible to the public, and it should be both comprehensive and individual at the same time. Kasher says a memorial should include the names of victims, even if people can't be expected to remember each one. And therefore, it's not an abstract notion of a number and a date and a place. It's a person, which is very important to to recall. It's a person with a name, with a face, with a history of life, with a history of death. And and I think that's the best way of uh, remembering people who died under such circumstances. 
The key to building a meaningful memorial, Kosher says, is to somehow keep the presence of the dead in the life of the living. His advice for Boston is to think about how its planned permanent memorial can teach future generations about this tragic chapter in the city's history. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. In Nigeria, people are sadly accustomed to violence, and more recently in northern Nigeria, it's an insidious violence perpetrated by government soldiers on civilians. Security forces in northern Nigeria have been rounding up and executing scores of citizens in an effort to stamp out the Islamic militant group Boko Haram. The militants have been waging a war against the Nigerian state for the past four years, but innocent civilians seem to be paying a heavy price in the latest government counteroffensive. New York Times correspondent Adam Nossiter recently visited the northern Nigerian city of Maiduguri, where he witnessed firsthand the military's efforts to eliminate Boko Haram. To combat it, the uh, Nigerian security forces, which are known for their ruthlessness, conduct sweeps in neighborhoods in northern Nigeria cities and more or less arbitrarily round up dozens of young men and take them to a much-feared detention center in the city of Maiduguri, which is a pretty large metropolis of over a million people. Uh, And there they are held incommunicado and beaten and tortured, starved to death, suffocated to death in some instances. And they wind up, by the dozen, I'm told, summarily dumped at the state hospital Uh, in the center of Maiduguri, and I witnessed a convoy of bodies uh, arriving at the hospital in 110-degree heat, an ambulance flanked by armored cars with machine gunners, and the telltale sign for me was that the ambulance attendants had to wear uh, protective face masks against the smell, which everybody around the hospital complains about. Mm. Despite the ruthlessness of the Nigerian military, this seems to go beyond the pale. I mean, how do you start to understand what's happening in this Nigerian city of Maiduguri? The weak government, way far away in Abuja, allows the military to do whatever it deems necessary to stamp out what the Nigerian government rightly regards as a mortal threat to its existence. So the military has carte blanche to do whatever it wants. And whatever it wants is to simply uh, go into neighborhoods and uh, round up, kill uh, anybody who might potentially be a Boko Haram member or sympathizer. It kills by the dozen. This is not something that it hides with any particular degree of care. I'm wondering if you met any citizens in the North who are concerned about Boko Haram, but are also questioning the extreme nature of this prosecution of Boko Haram. Oh, yes. There are many people in civil society in the North of Nigeria who believe that the cure uh, has become far worse than the disease. Can you tell us about one of them that you met and kind of maybe the precautions you had to take to speak with them? Most of the people that I spoke with uh, refused to be quoted by name for very good reason, because they're fearful of retribution either by the military or by Boko Haram. On the other hand, I met a number of people who were anxious to get this story about the mass delivery of corpses out. They were anxious that this story be told 
because the Nigerian media, for all of the energy that it exhibits, is quite cowed, understandably so, by the military. Do many of the people you, you spoke with assume that the people who've presumably been killed by their government were not guilty of anything? Yes. The uh, assumption is that the Nigerian military is arbitrarily uh, arresting large numbers of young men for no good reason. And it's an assumption that can be documented. There are uh, many, many young men who, who simply disappear against whom there's, there's really no evidence that they, they're either members of Boko Haram or sympathizers with it. There are many such people in my degree who um, have been missing family members. And I interviewed a young man who uh, simply happened to be in the vicinity of a Boko Haram attack in January, and he was rounded up along with seven others. And he's not guilty of anything more than selling clothes at the bus station. He was lucky because he has a friend who's a policeman who pleaded for him. But those who were rounded up with him were not so lucky. And they're still in detention in this barracks uh, where, as I said, people are starved and tortured. Does it seem to you like uh, anything else you've ever covered in Nigeria? It's, it's, it's nearly impossible. It is unimaginable, I think, for Americans to conceive of other Americans in uniform or out uh, routinely killing on a large scale their fellow citizens. And yet this is what happens in Nigeria. The level of brutality that uh, Nigerians exhibit towards their fellow citizens is something that is really without precedent uh, elsewhere in the region, elsewhere in West Africa. I know of no place where it's on such a scale. And yet uh, it persists in this very large and, and really very uh, influential and important country in the heart of Africa. Adam Nossiter, West Africa Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Thank you for telling us about this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Still ahead on the program, get thinking about the many forms of sausage. You're tuned to The World from Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Former Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide testified in court today in Port-au-Prince. He was questioned in connection to the murder of prominent radio journalist Jean-Dominique. Dominique had been a critic of Aristide before the journalist was assassinated in 2000. But many other prominent political figures have also been questioned in the case. And to this day, there are still no solid leads on who may have planned the assassination. Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected twice to the presidency of Haiti, and twice he was ousted by a coup. He lived in exile in South Africa before returning to Haiti two years ago. Since then, he's kept a low profile, so today's court appearance was a big deal in Haiti. Reporter Susanna Ferreira was at the courthouse earlier today. Inside the courthouse, it was packed with local journalists and some international journalists waiting all day to try and catch a glimpse of him. This is the very first time Aristide has been seen in public since he arrived just over two years ago. So historically, it's a, an important day in that regard. He is accompanied by an enormous number of supporters. There are several thousands, but um, people were also hoping, I think, that former President Aristide would have a few words to say because he has remained largely silent since he's been back. Why is Aristide being questioned about the murder of journalist Jean-Dominique back in 2000? And did he have any information to share about it in court today? 
The exact line of questioning is something I'm not aware of. His lawyers have not spoken to the press since. They would not even hint at what kind of questions he might be asked before they went in. So we'll have to wait and see what they say once they're ready to speak to the press and share that information. Jean-Bertrand Aristide was questioned, as was former President René Preval. Um, he was questioned earlier this year. And a number of other high-profile people have been questioned already in this case. Why is so much being made of the death of Jean-Dominique? And why are there really no clues to his murder uh, more than 12 years ago? I've been told that the case, when it finally, when the investigation finally did open up, it dragged on. It was delayed. There were a number of rumors as to who might have been behind it. I know some arrests were made of, of the shooters, or at least one of the shooters, but it was never determined who ordered the killing of Jean-Dominique. He was a very outspoken journalist. He did have a fair number of enemies, but until today, it's one of Haiti's great unsolved crimes, and it is a very political crime as well. Jean-Bertrand Aristide evokes so much of Haiti for many Americans, a, a certain period, too, of recent Haitian history that, for a brief spell, seemed more hopeful than other chapters of Haitian history. What was it like for Haitians today to see Aristide, to see him waving to the crowd? Well, people who were in front of the courthouse, you understand, are people who are already supporters. I, I rushed out after he, he got into his vehicle, and, and you could just hear cheers erupting. I was told by, by other colleagues that he actually stuck his head out of the car door and waved to people. Um, and this is the first time they've seen this man in the flesh in many years. For those who were able to see him when he first arrived, it's been two years. But for other people who haven't seen him since he was exiled nine years ago at this point, this was a very emotionally charged moment for them. People carry photos of Aristide around with them. Many people have photos of Aristide in their homes. And during protests, they bring framed portraits of him. They have banners with his face on it. So to be able to see him in the flesh, I think, was quite emotional for them. And in recent weeks, there's been talk that he's actively trying to be um, part of his old party, Famille Lavelas, and elections that were meant to have taken place in late 2011 are scheduled to take place later this year. Uh, and there's already some talk of whether or not his party will be able to participate as they've been excluded in, in, from past elections for various reasons. So for those who are watching... It might seem that there is perhaps no coincidence in that his next major appearance comes at a time when important elections are being planned. Reporter Susanna Ferreira speaking with us from the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince. Thanks for your time, Susanna. Thank you. You like to eat? Well, a Spanish eatery called Can Roca was recently declared best restaurant in the world, at least according to the experts surveyed by Restaurant Magazine. The three Roca brothers run their kitchen less than an hour from a former winner, also in Spain. El Bouilly was the top pick four years running, from 2004 to 2007. Its mastermind, Ferran Adria, is considered one of the most cutting-edge chefs around. But he closed El Bouilly at the height of its success. The world's Jerry Haddon tells us about the chef's next project. Ferran Adria is like Willy Wonka, but with food. A legend. A guy who can take a pecan and a clump of spinach and change your taste buds forever. But a guy like that, what's he do once he's dazzled the world for years on end? Unlike Wonka, he doesn't go into hiding. He starts a foundation. What's it do? He's not entirely sure, so he gets 31 of the best business schools from around the world to give him ideas. This is Adria at the IESE Business School today in Barcelona, presenting the El Bulli Foundation's master plan. 
The presentation is at a breakfast. He's made it, or he's designed it at least. Mm. This is a tiny brioche with an olive tapenade swirled on top. Sweet and salty. Delicious. Breakfast is 10 courses. Dinner at El Bulli was around 37. You'd eat things like Iberian ham tapioca or spherical egg of white asparagus with false truffle. Breakfast isn't quite so exotic, but it ain't flapjacks and bacon either. Braised Catalan cream on sponge cake with a lemon garnish. Crunchy Parmesan crisps made from pie dough. There's also a chocolate coulant with a cool mango puree center and paper-thin slices of manchego cheese served on miniature nut bread buns. And after the presentation. El Bulli Foundation will do three things. It'll fund a 50-person food lab where cooks will keep on inventing. They'll publish their findings, as it were, on a webpage called Bullipedia, your one-stop internet site for, say, the latest on freezing polenta in liquid nitrogen. I ask Adria if this isn't all going too far. Business schools, food theory, intellectualizing eating. Food's for your stomach, not for your head, right? If you want to talk about simple family meals, that's great, he says. But the second you discuss vanguard recipes, the conversation automatically becomes intellectual. But there's room for it all, he says. Then there's El Bulli itself. The restaurant has been shut for three years now, but Adria is going to reopen the space as an interactive museum, a visitor center, and a source of inspiration. Adria says what we want to endure is El Bulli's concept of innovation, the spirit of the place, of all the people who've passed through our doors. The details have yet to come together, but Adria says imagine a mix of Cirque du Soleil, a scientist's laboratory, and a Salvador Dali landscape to open in 2015. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, Trinidadian musician Anthony Joseph on the griot storytelling tradition. I see some of the really great like, you know, Nina Simone and fella, people like Marley, they were griots. They were carrying on that tradition of spreading the word, you know, what it means to be a diasporic person, what it means to be black, let's say. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's showtime for immigration reform. Tomorrow morning, legislation to overhaul the nation's immigration system will face its first big legislative hurdle, the Senate Judiciary Committee. The bill is not a done deal, and it's hard to predict what will happen as it navigates through both the Senate and the House. But if it passes eventually, it could radically change life for the 11 million immigrants currently living in the U.S. illegally. They could find themselves on a new path to citizenship, and a new legal status could make it possible for them to travel openly. For years, immigrants who are here illegally have been afraid to visit relatives back home for fear of not being able to come back. 
As part of our global nation coverage of immigration, Jude Jaffe Block reports from Mexico on families hoping for long-awaited reunions. It's a typical Sunday in the town of Tepeyapulco in Mexico's central highlands. Families gather, cook, and catch up. And that's the scene at Santiago Dominguez's home. At 82 years old, he's the family patriarch. He's wearing pressed slacks, his dark hair smoothed back. By lunchtime, he's surrounded by relatives. But one person's always missing. Rosa, Dominguez's daughter. In the living room, there's a picture of her as a young woman. Dominguez says he thought she'd only be gone three or four years and then come back. But it's been 18 years since Rosa left for Arizona with her two young sons. They went illegally to join the boy's father there. She's now 43 and has never returned to Mexico. Without papers, it's just too risky. It got to the point, Dominguez says, that he started to say to his daughter, you know, I'm not sure if we'll see each other again. But now they might. A proposed Senate bill would allow millions of immigrants who entered the U.S. illegally to apply for provisional status and the chance to work legally and travel internationally. There's hope, like never before, Dominguez says, and it's a feeling felt throughout Mexico. A few towns over, Catalina Cervera knocks on a neighbor's gate to visit the house next door, the one her younger sister, Sandra, abandoned. Buenos dias. Cervera's sister left Mexico with her young children about 10 years ago. They crossed into Arizona illegally, picked produce, and now live near Phoenix. Cervera says that since her sister's been gone, thieves have stripped her house clean, even the roof. It's a cinder block skeleton. Cervera says she and her sister have felt impotencia, powerlessness. They want to see each other, but can't. Her sister couldn't visit when their mother was dying. And a few years ago, Cervera couldn't get a tourist visa to see her sister in Arizona. Que tuviéramos cuenta en el banco, que si tuviéramos algún negocio, que si teníamos tarjetas de crédito. Entonces, desgraciadamente, pues no, no teníamos nada de eso. Cervera says she lacked what's needed for a U.S. visa, things like a bank account, a business, or a credit card. But now she can envision her sister and her sister's kids visiting Mexico again. Están como motivados, ¿no?, con esa ilusión de que les va a llegar esa reforma inmigratoria. Cervera says that they're encouraged, hopeful, that immigration reform will happen. But as Congress debates the legislation, the wait continues. Sin ti no podré vivir jamás. Back in Tepeyapulco, Dominguez's tradition is to sing to his daughter a famous Mexican ballad over the phone. It's called Sin Ti, or Without You. Sin ti, ¿qué me puede ya importar? What else matters, he sings, if being far from you makes me cry? Over a thousand miles away in Arizona, his daughter Rosa has become an activist for immigration reform. She's asked us to only use her first name because of her unauthorized status. Quisiera que esto, que esto se hiciera ya, porque la vida de nuestros padres 
no espera. Rosa says immigrants like her need reform to happen now because their parents' lives won't wait. And if that does happen, if she can travel to Mexico freely, she says she'll surprise her dad with a mariachi band and they'll play that ballad he's sung to her for the last 18 years. For the world, I'm Jude Jaffe Block in Hidalgo, Mexico. Jude's report comes to us from the public radio collaboration Fronteras. We're flipping the geo quiz on its head today. We'll tell you the name of a place. It's off the western coast of Scotland. And then it's up to you to name the delicacy it's known for. The place is the Isle of Lewis. It's at the northern northern end of Lewis and Harris, a large island that for some reason people refer to as two separate ones. Anyway, the biggest town in Lewis is called Stornoway, population 9,000. And a delicacy it's known for, the one you have to name, has just been granted official food copyright protection by the European Union. This meaty delight, if you can call it that, is now in a league with champagne and camembert. Locals say the Lewis treat has a lovely crumble to it with no lumps of fat unlike the Irish and English versions. That should help a bit. So what is it? The answer is coming up in just a few minutes. We've been hearing a lot about the violence between Buddhists and Muslims in Myanmar. Some of it's been stirred up by militant Buddhist monks, which is still kind of a jarring concept. But they're a tiny minority. About a half million Burmese devote their lives to Buddhist practice in monasteries. You see them all over the country, monks wrapped in maroon robes, nuns in pink ones. Reporter Bruce Wallace recently traveled to Myanmar, also known as Burma, and he spent some time with a few novice monks who are about to graduate. Wander into any Buddhist monastery in Myanmar, and there's a good chance you'll hear this coming out of an open window. This scene at Megan Monastery in Yangon is replicated around the country. Young novice monks sit on the floor, cross-legged on mats, leaning over open books, their fingers following lines as they recite. The first few times I heard this, I assumed they were just really out of sync. Maybe they needed some more practice. As you probably guessed, though, the lack of unison isn't an accident. Everyone's reciting different passages from the collection of texts that make up the canon for Theravada Buddhism, the predominant type practiced in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka. They're all at different stages in their lesson. Reciting out loud tests their ability to focus on their particular text. Not surprisingly, it can be hard for a bunch of teenage boys to focus. Tamisara is 19 years old. He's been a novice for the last eight years. Students can become full monks once they turn 20. He says from time to time during the lessons, his mind wanders. Sometimes he's happy with the routine, but other times it's a bit boring. And that routine starts early. Novice monks at Megan wake up at 5 a.m. and make breakfast for the senior monks. There are morning lessons and cleaning. By 9, they're out on their daily alms walk. Monks marching single file on morning alms walks are a common sight around Yangon. Sometimes they're announced by lay people leading the way with a gong and a megaphone. People come out of homes and shops to put offerings into the monks' bowls. Monks get most of the day's food on these walks. 
Giving alms is a way for lay people to get merit and for monks to stay in touch with the world outside of the monastery. Nandatara is another novice at Megan. When I ask him if he has friends outside of the monastery, he says the people he visits every day on his alms walk are his friends. When they get back from gathering alms, novices eat lunch and rest until 1 p.m., when afternoon lessons start. Buddhist boys in Myanmar are expected to spend at least a little time in monastery. They learn the basics of the faith and earn merit, a kind of spiritual credit that will benefit themselves and their family in this and future lives. Those who stay longer do so for a variety of reasons, religious devotion or family expectations. For poor families, it can be a way to provide room and board and education for a son. Nandatara is 19 and has been a monk since he was seven. One of his early reasons for joining was superficial. When I was younger, I really just liked wearing the robes. I thought I looked handsome in the robes. After I grew up a little, I started to like learning about Buddhist thoughts and teachings. That's kept me here. Sometimes it runs in the family. Tamisara, for instance, is the nephew of Megan's head monk. I asked them what the hardest part of monastic life is. Tamisara, likely aware that his uncle is nearby, laughs and squirms a bit, avoiding the question at first. <laughs> Finally, he says that even in a monastery, temptation is hard to avoid. Sometimes all he can think about is finishing lessons so he can watch TV. Soon, Tamisara and Nandatara will face a choice. They're both a few months shy of 20, the age when novices can be ordained as full-fledged monks. Tamisara is conflicted. When I look outside and see people my age laughing and playing, I want to go join them. But when I spend time with senior monks, I want to stay a monk. I can't decide. When we finish talking, Tamisara wants to get a picture of the three of us. As I get into my car, he's leaning over the second-floor balcony, smiling and waving. I'm curious to know what he decides. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace in Yangon, Myanmar. We also spoke with Bruce about militant Burmese monks calling for attacks against Muslims. You can hear that interview at theworld.org. Back to the Isle of Lewis in Scotland now to hear about a traditional delicacy made there. Locals say it's one of the island's proudest cultural achievements. Claire McLeod works at one of the island's established butchers, the Charles McLeod Butcher Shop. Hello. Hi, Marco. Great to speak with you. Help us out here with the answer. What is this food we're talking about from the Isle of Lewis? The town is called Stornoway, Stornoway. the Isle of Lewis. Okay. The food is Stornoway Black Pudding. Stornoway Black Pudding. Now, Stornoway Black Pudding, it's not a pudding, as many of our listeners might imagine, a bowl of chocolate pudding, for example. It's been hailed as the best sausage made in the UK. What makes it so unique? It's a recipe that's been handed down over hundreds of generations. It's food from the croft, and crofting is the heritage way of agriculture here in the islands. So it was food that was made from the land and from everything that was on the land. So basically from livestock, from oatmeal and various other ingredients went in to make this black pudding. And the recipe is the same today as it was several hundred years ago. Now black pudding would imply blood, right? You're cooking blood with oats and uh, various spices, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, Red blood, which is either sheep's blood, pig's blood or cow's blood, Scottish oatmeal, onions finely chopped, beef suet, and a secret mix of spices. And everything is chopped very, very finely and mixed up together. And then it is piped into a sausage-shaped skin 
and cook it by grilling it or frying it lightly. What does it so taste like? Uh, it's a very spicy, savoury product, very meaty, obviously, but quite uh, light in texture. It's a meaty but spicy taste. Now, Stornoway Black Pudding has just been officially granted uh, EU protection against copycats and imposters. If it's not made on the Isle of Lewis, then you can't call it Stornoway Black Pudding? Yeah, that's correct. It has to be made within the town of Stornoway. In the town itself? In the town itself, yeah. It's effectively a trademark that protects our product from copycats. So how is Stornoway Black Pudding usually consumed? Do you grill it? Do you then serve it with a little Scottish ale or on a cracker? Traditionally, it was a breakfast food, and it still is a breakfast food. So it would be served on a Scottish breakfast with bacon and eggs and sausage, mushrooms, a good old Scottish fry-up. So you said eggs, bacon, sausage, and then some of this blood sausage. That's a lot of meat for breakfast. (laughs) Yes, that's that's a very traditional Scottish breakfast. Have you had any lately for breakfast? Oh, uh, very regularly, yes. (laughs) It's very much a food that expatriates of the Outer Hebrides hold dear to their hearts. So many people travelling back to the islands for holidays and visiting will will always purchase a few rolls of Stornoway black pudding and take back with them to their relatives and friends. So describe the scene today at your family's uh, butcher shop there in Stornoway. I mean, are people really a buzz about this news. Oh, yeah, that very, got... very excited. We've been working on this uh, legal application since probably 2005. So it's nigh on eight years this application has taken us. And uh, really, it's it's a very exciting day-to-day for us. It's a big milestone safeguarding the future of not just the product, but of the local economy, jobs, and the food and drink industry at large, really, in Outer Hebrides. Little Stornoway is now on the world map. Is this cause for celebration? You're going to throw a party? Oh, it's definitely cause for celebration, yes. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be one or two parties over this. Claire McLeod, who holds down the fort at the Charles McLeod Butcher Shop in Stornoway in Scotland, she gave us the answer to today's GeoQuiz, Stornoway Black Pudding. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Now, most of the 700-plus people who played along with today's GeoQuiz texting game guessed haggis. That's delicious, too, but we're sticking with Stornoway Black Pudding, and we posted a recipe at theworld.org. Clara in Dallas, Texas, Erica in Holly Springs, Georgia, Brad in Louisville, Kentucky, and Kevin in Broadway, Washington all seem to know their Scottish meat delicacies. Thanks for playing, people. Try again tomorrow. Just text GeoQuiz, one word, to 69866. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let me take you back to February. The scene, Belgium. It's a dark, wintry night at Brussels Airport. On the tarmac sits a plane loaded with $50 million worth of diamonds. The plane is just about to take off for Zurich, Switzerland. And then, as AFP reporter Philippe Schuberski recounts, two cars suddenly approach the plane. There were... Two cars pretending to be police cars uh, with eight men on board, and um, they just cut through the airport's perimeter fence, and uh, they rushed to a plane which was uh, supposed to go to Switzerland with uh, diamonds. 
and they um, pretended to be to be police officer, and they took bags with uh, diamonds uh, for uh, approximately fifty million dollars, and then they went out by the, the same the same way. It was the biggest, boldest diamond heist in decades. The clockwork precision of it all had people comparing it to crime caper films like Ocean's Eleven. Hours after the heist, authorities found the burnt remains of a van they believe was used in the crime. And then the trail seemed to go cold. Talk about a clean getaway, but not so fast. Over the past two days, police have raided locations in Switzerland, Luxembourg, and France in pursuit of the perpetrators. And today, Jean-Marc Meyer of the Brussels Prosecutor's Office said the raids paid off. Several objects were seized, Meyer said, including diamonds that we believe came from the heist. He also said several people were arrested. Meyer said those arrested included one French citizen who is suspected of being one of the robbers that pulled off the heist at the airport. Six other suspects were arrested in Switzerland, including a lawyer and a Geneva businessman. And this morning, a series of police raids in Belgium Belgium led to the detention of two dozen more people. Ten of them, authorities say, are known criminals. So far, AFP journalist Philippe Schuberski says officials are not saying whether all the diamonds stolen from the plane have been accounted for. They were still counting the diamonds and trying to evaluate it. So it's too early. We don't know exactly if it's uh, half or almost the total amount uh, they recovered. Uh, yes, indeed, in Belgium, they uh, said they, uh, the police took a big amount of money and also luxury cars. Police also haven't said how exactly they got on the trail of the suspects. That may come later, but I almost prefer to wait for the Steven Soderbergh version. And finally, Anthony Joseph grew up on the island of Trinidad in the Caribbean. He began writing poetry when he was 10, and after he moved to London as an adult, he started setting his words to music. Marissa Neff has his story. Joseph describes his childhood on the outskirts of Port of Spain as being free-spirited and full of music. When he was young, his grandparents introduced him to the songs of Trinidad's calypso greats, like Lord Kitchener and the Mighty Sparrow. As he got a bit older, his musical tastes grew to include international acts, anything from Black Sabbath to Bob Marley. And pretty soon, he started yearning to experience life outside of Trinidad. If you're a Trinidadian, at that time, success or sort of progression in your life it was synonymous with moving abroad. It was about getting out of the island, going to the States, going to, to Europe. You feel you want to see, you want to see the world. And I, was, I got caught up in that, and I, I just came. I took the chance. I just flew to England on my own. Never been anywhere else in, in the world, and I just did it. Joseph landed in London at the age of 22. While he'd been writing poetry for years, it was only after he arrived in the UK that he began to turn his words into songs. She said blue Like a strange hill She steps out of bed Hunting with the most devilish technique Within six months, he was performing in a straight-ahead rock band called Zed. But his early musical forays bear little resemblance to what he's doing today with Anthony Joseph and the Spasm Band. 
He says it took years to brew up the group's cosmopolitan mix of funk, calypso, Afrobeat, and spoken word. Joseph found himself drawing on his Caribbean roots. I think I wanted to do something more, more earthy and more Trinidadian and more reflective of my experience growing up. And in songs like Grio, he reflects on finding a place within the African diaspora. The Grio is the sound of universal culture, a vocal music from Black Africa, blown into a mouthpiece with intricate notions of space and place. The Grio. some of the really great, like, you know, Nina Simone and Fella, people like Marley, they were real. They were carrying on that tradition of spreading the word, spreading, and what's the word? The experience of the diaspora, the, you know, what it means to be a diasporic person, what it means to be black, let's say, um, in the contemporary world. They, were, they are carrying that message around the world and making the world a smaller place. Joseph gets back to Trinidad every other year or so, often around carnival time. And even though he's properly settled into London life, maintaining his identity as a Trinidadian is important to him. No matter how long he stays in England, he says he'll never call himself a Brit. I think as a Caribbean person, the longer you stay away is the more Caribbean you become. Because the things that are important to you, you know, your culture, your, your low language, they become more sentimental and more melancholic as you, grow, as you grow older. So you become, I feel, I'm becoming more Trinidadian the longer I stay away from the Caribbean. It's impossible for me to, to become English. I can't do that. So, you know, I'm, I'm more Trinidadian, as I was saying, you know, than, than, than ever. Up to train, take my car taxi. For the world, I'm Marissa Neff. just lay away on the back seat. With she leg open, why don't she smoke and she sensey? Can't get it. She say as a worthless boy, you don't care about your family. When your tanty fall, who you think hell she? You can watch the video for the spasm band song She Is the Sea at theworld.org. That's it for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Tune in tomorrow. I said Tanty Hush was one set of heart. And Tanti look at my back, she said. She look at my back, she said. She's on ages. She's on ages. She's on ages. Can't get it. Can't get it. Can't get it. Can't get it. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org, the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.